Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Caron. Today, we're talking about GameStop, AMC, and why we can expect more of the madness we saw last week why Twitter should become a subscription business, and the one stock on S&P 500 that we'd short if we had to. So Rory, a couple of weeks ago, you asked for listeners in countries where we had only one listener to reach out to us and say hello. Well, a few days ago, James from Mauritania on the West African coast reached out to us via a colleague here in my Wall Street to say hello. So hello, James. I hope the weather is a bit better over there than it is here in Dublin. Wow, Mauritania? Yeah, that's, that's a good one. I like that. That's a great yeah. one. It's a good one. So I actually, I, I took the time for this podcast to go through the list of other countries where we have only one listener. So I'm going to read out the list now. And if you are that listener, that country, reach out and get in touch. And uh, I don't know. I don't think we've anything to send you, but uh, we'll say hello. <laughs> so we have Bosnia and Herzegovina, Bangladesh, the Bahamas, Belize, Dominican Republic, Ghana, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, Morocco, Niger, Papua New Guinea, El Salvador, the minor outlining islands of the United States, which I'm not sure what that is exactly, <laughs> and the Virgin Islands. So uh, if you are the single listener in any of those countries, reach out and say hello. The most amazing country there, sorry, is Bangladesh, because that's like one of the most populated countries in the world. So it's amazing that we've penetrated the market, but only got one person. It's only there. up from here, Rory. It's only up. <laughs> Massive market opportunity. Emma, do you think we could get my Wall Street to stretch for a, a fact-finding mission to the Virgin Islands? Or Yeah, I'm thinking Necker Island. I, I saw a documentary about it and its inhabitants, and I thought, yeah, I could live like that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll get back to you on that then. So in the last episode of Stock Club, as you all might remember, I asked both of you to pitch me a red hot risky contrarian stock pitch with a disclaimer that it was just for a bit of fun. Emmett, you pitched AMC, which was about three and a half dollars at the time, I think, or, or maybe less. I think it was actually just under three dollars. Mm. Uh, between that episode going live and the following Wednesday, the stock price had jumped well over fivefold to hit a high of almost twenty dollars. So I suppose the real question is, have you any more stock tips for us? <laughs> Are you going to tell us your Reddit username? Come on. Hashtag pump and dump. No, I, I actually, um, my crystal ball was really working well that day. Yeah. And I have to say, I was totally surprised. But I have to say, um, my whole investment thesis for AMC had nothing to do with the events that prevailed. I was actually, like, I was just happy that AMC had found a new line of credit, that vaccines were being rolled out. I figured we'd all get back to the cinema by the summer. And um, sure enough, other matters were bubbling up on Reddit. Yeah, it was really a case of being right, for, but for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> Oh, entirely. Just trying to you dig yourself out of uh, SEC investigation because uh, it's not going to work. <laughs> Look, I, I, I'm not. Let me give you an example. I, I, I'm not one for golf. I'm not a huge fan, uh, but I've played about five rounds of golf in my life, and each one I enjoyed less. But in one particular round of golf, I had a hole in one. 
Uh, yeah. I hit the ball. It went straight in. That's what happened with AMC. The least, I mean, <laughs> honestly, uh, I was like, when by Wednesday, I thought, yes, I think I might just build a career off this crystal ball. But sure enough, um, it really was just a short squeeze. Now, granted, it's fallen all the way back to like two or threefold where I called it. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, I'll take it. Yeah, it was good. Absolutely. Well, as many of our listeners surely know by now, AMC was one of a handful of stocks that was caught up in what I suppose you could say was one of the most bizarre market events that I've personally ever seen anyway. Driven by the now infamous Wall Street bets subreddit, a buying frenzy of stock on beaten down companies like GameStop, AMC, Koss and BlackBerry triggered the mother of all short squeezes last week, sending shares in GameStop particularly skyrocketing and even toppling a hedge fund. Um, lads, there's obviously a lot of stuff we can talk about here, but I want to come to you first, Emmett, as you're the most experienced fester here. Um, have you ever seen anything happen like this before or have you ever seen a market like we experienced last week? No, there are parallels, but no, I've never seen anything with the same kind of uh, orchestration as we saw in the last week. I mean, about about 50 or 60 years ago, Merrill Lynch, the big stockbroker in the US, became known as the Thundering Herd, which I think I might have even informed their logo, which is a bull. Um, and, and what they had was a network of investment advisors and clients, tens of thousands of yeah. of investment advisors who and it was their recommendation would actually move the markets so this army of Merrill Lynch advisors would advise their clients their clients would take an action and the market would move and this very much reminded me uh, or came back to me when I saw the events of the last week uh, you could say that the Reddit brigade uh, was 2021's thundering herd yeah. and as you said like the, at the the, the centre of the frenzy of activity was GameStop and uh, you know it is a, a real you know 20th century bricks and mortar business model um, you know in April of last year it was like two dollars and change it was like two bucks fifty a share yeah um, and last week hit $483 a share. Um, and actually another way of looking at it, sorry, just another one I, I just found was that last year um, GameStop traded around 5 million shares a day. Yeah. But last Tuesday, its volume rose to 178 million shares, which is twice wow. the total shares in issuance traded on a single day. So I can safely say I have never even heard of such a thing i didn't think that the the systems that exist could cope with such demand so the entire number of shares out in circulation changed hands 2x in one day and that to me uh is unquestionably a first and um maybe some of our listeners can point at something similar but frankly the last week is one of the most unprecedented moments uh and as these things generally are it popped up when we least expected it. Absolutely. Rory, I think one of the things last week really showed me was the difference between the idea of trading stock and the idea of investing in stock. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, I think there's multiple ways to look at this story and I, probably the worst way I think is to be dismissive of yeah. it and somehow imply that the people involved are you know foolish in some way or that they were like totally misguided. Uh, I'll point out that on Monday um, the New York Times Daily did a podcast on this and the first person they had on to speak wasn't anyone wasn't the business editor wasn't anyone from the world of finance but it was Taylor Lorenz who covers internet culture yeah. um, so the New York Times took a decision that this story was more about internet culture than it was about finance and I think there's a good argument to be made for that um, 
you could even go like one step further I suppose and say it's a story about the times we live in and the tensions that exist out there at the moment like looking at Wall Street bets is kind of where this kind of all originated from its subject is finance but the driving forces of that subreddit are so varied like there's there's a desire to make money not just like what we talk about a desire to you know retire wealthy but like to make I've got five yachts kind of money (laughs) and to make it like tomorrow you know but there's also this desire to kind of create memes and to kind of spark movements to to utilize the collective to kind of make change you know harness the internet for what what it was supposed to be for in the first place and that can oftentimes be kind of cloaked I suppose in sort of machismo even kind of toxic masculinity to, to, to a point but like make no mistake the people who pull this off the ones who made the serious money anyway yeah. are by no means foolish they they saw a flaw in the system and exploited yeah. it and of course that's what people on Wall Street do every day that's what people working in hedge funds do every day so now there's another side to this which is people who tried to kind of turn it into this kind of revolutionary movement um, and then you kind of have to look like who benefits there do they really believe that they're you know trying to overthrow a corrupt financial system or are they perpetrating one of the oldest cons in the book which is convince convince people who don't know much better that they're in on it you know that they're in on the con themselves and um, that they're not the ones being manipulated that some powerful kind of faceless entity is that's been holding people down for centuries is a, is, a, is the one that's going to take it in the neck and you can totally see why so many people were happy to indulge in this idea you know we live in a world of extreme inequality totally heightened by social media there's people out there have more money than they could spend in a hundred lifetimes yeah. and there's, there's those who struggle every day to pay their health bills and so you know, and and then top on that, this like real distrust that emerged. You know that we we're living in this post truth world. You know, all I could think about last week was that Orwell line: two plus two equals five, which is just such a famous, powerful line because it encapsulates everything about truth. You know, once two plus two equals five, it can it can equal anything. Yeah, you know, it doesn't. Once you've crossed that Rubicon, there's no going back. And I think that. You know, Reddit, you, the Reddit users who started this will claim Wall Street crossed that line a long time ago. Like, who are they to get to decide what a company is worth? Why, you know, they talk a lot about things like intrinsic value and fair value and then slap a multiple on it that fluctuates day by day. So one day a company is worth 50 billion, the next day it's worth 60 billion. And that's just because some group of people in a Wall Street bank decided that's what it was worth. You know, that's, that's the attitude they have. Mm. And... You know, Scott Galloway made a point that the wealth of people under the age of 40 as a percentage of total wealth has gone from 19% to 9% in the last 30 years. Like, that's a huge yeah. change in society and the structure of how we live. And I think you get, you take all these elements, you bring them together, and, and, and they were all kind of fighting um, at some point last week over control of this narrative, over control of where this whole thing was going. And on top of that, you had some people who... I think no better who were throwing fuel on the flames it was a it was a real hot mess yeah. to be well, with you and, uh, you've mentioned a lot of different kind of actors and different influences there and it kind of struck me because a lot of the the commentary i've been reading was really pitching it as a, a david versus goliath battle you know the, the individual retail investor versus you know the faceless hedge fund on wall street i i don't think it is as simple as that and i'd, I'd like to get your perspective you know a lot of it you know there was revolutionary talk and I, I saw one one article that compared it to the French Revolution which I don't know if I, I exactly agree with but there was a sense as well I thought of kind of like nihilism and, and people weren't 
obviously wanted well people obviously wanted to make money but they were also just doing it because they could I have to, you, you have to give them credit they stormed the castle yeah. <laughs> there's, there's absolutely no doubt they stormed the castle now in every revolution there's bad actors who then come in and you know try to profiteer off the back of that and I think there's those elements of that as well from our point of view from what we do we were looking at it going like well this has nothing to do with investing does it yeah. it just doesn't like there's no investing angle to this it's it's there's trading angle to it there's a societal element to it there's the whole social media buzz and and you know robin hood and all, all these various elements are coming in but it really had nothing to do with what we do on a day-to-day basis yeah. we just try and kind of analyze great companies for the next five to ten years so this is this is as far as i think we should be kind of talking about it in a more much more kind of abstract absolutely way. and let's get back to that point emmett you know when you see the craziness of last week, you, you, as a long-term investor, you feel a lot of emotions. You feel like maybe you're missing out on something. You feel like maybe worried about the positions you currently have. As a long-term investor, when you see such kind of wild and volatile day trading, how are you supposed to respond? What approach should you take? You know, the grown-up approach is to stand back and let it play out and watch it. And, you know, there's so it's so easy to get drawn into it because it is a biological need have a flutter and Jason Zweig kind of um, documented this in his book I think it's your money in your brain where he said you have to acknowledge at a biological level there's a human need to get the rush of a bet and you know so what's actually happening now I'm not speaking as a doctor but I am speaking as a (laughs) you know as a stock investor that there is this kind of this addictive quality you've bought a share and suddenly it's double and or you've missed it should I buy now and hopefully get the double again and then if you're in there's there's regret that you didn't invest more and should I sell now there's so many conversations happening in your head that are a mix between regret uh, and greed and excitement and and possibly and in a lot of cases probably uh, the the feeling of loss when you've gotten in a bit late and it's fallen over the other side of the cliff and really you don't want to be you don't want to be doing that with your investments yes if you want to participate in that market go to your local bookies or is that what they're called yeah. in America go to your local bookmaker to your betting shop and um, that's where you should be appealing to that need if you feel it prevails in your mind in a controlled you know environment and uh, only better you can afford to lose etc but like it shouldn't be done on the stock market can I can I pitch a side podcast where Emmett does talk like a doctor? Can you, think about that as a, as a new show can you get sued for medical malpractice if you're not a doctor? <laughs> we better maybe we'll get our legal team on that first. Um, just to finish up on this point, then Roy, I want to come back to you and I want to ask what you think the long term effects of an event like this is going to be. You know, this is the first time, as as Emmett mentioned, we've seen this kind of like collective action, for want of a better term. You know in terms of making these trades fueled by internet communities and low-cost brokerages and all the kind of the things we're enjoying in, in, in 2021. Do you think this is something we'll see continue or, or more for? Was this just a one-off event? I definitely don't think it was a one-off event. Um, you know, I was listening back to the podcast pre- before we started recording this. I listened back to our previous podcast when we were talking about kind of TikTok and the people who are investing on TikTok. And part of me was kind of thinking like, you know, what? who, who are we to say that a generation can't use the medium of their choice to talk about things like investing you know that's yeah. um so in some ways it's like well this is going to be part of the future this is how people communicate now and 
I don't know, like long-term effects are hard to tell when it, I don't think it's over yet. This, you know, we, we're, we're recording on Wednesday. <laughs> the things might have changed rapidly by, by the time Friday comes along. Yeah. Um, I think for hedge funds, they're definitely going to take a lot less risk. <laughs> they're not going to um, expose themselves to something like that happening again when you see the likes of Melvin Capital losing billions of dollars and like actual billions of dollars over the course of a couple of days. Um, but I think there'll be positives and negatives that come out for it. I think it's bred a lot of distrust in the system. Uh, particularly in the brokerages like Robinhood. Yeah. Um, but that distrust is unfortunate as well because, you know, there's a lot of people who probably this was their first experience of the markets and they might be completely disillusioned with the notion of investing altogether now. Yeah, that's definitely a, a possibility. I think uh, the people who have bought at the highs could end up losing an awful lot of money and that'll breed a lot of distrust and a lot of anger. Mm. Um that doesn't need to be there at the moment there's already enough of that out there in the world so uh, yeah, I mean I don't know what the, lo- what, what, what the actual long term effects of it are, are going to be I think there is there definitely is I think we will look back on this moment in 5-10 years and remember it it's not something that's just going to fade mm-hmm. into obscurity Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think Emmett? Yeah actually it's quite kind of interesting my, my, our colleague John Tyrrell was on the phone on Sunday to the CEO of a giant giant stockbroker in the US whose name I'll withhold because neither John nor that CEO were speaking on behalf of a podcast and the CEO in question uh, of the company that I'm quite certain all of our listeners would know uh, was sympathetic towards Robin Hood. Uh, he was of the mind that this was a force beyond anything that they could have ever considered that wasn't of their doing. Uh, and, and I was quite surprised, actually. John debriefed me on how that chat went. And, and I think brokers realised that this rise, this force that they observed was bigger than the system. And yeah. that is one of the many elements, I think, that kind of make it the most unique uh, situation. You know, brokers themselves, seasoned brokers and owners and founders of brokerage firms uh, have never seen the likes and never anticipated such a movement and didn't dimension their systems for this kind of, of surge. Yeah, I mean, we're coming we're coming off the end of remember forty years of deregulation and toothless federal agencies that don't take action when they see weaknesses in the system, and, and it's you know th- this should be a wake up call at least to those in in power to say here we need to yeah. shore up the systems and start putting putting some integrity back into these markets because people are losing faith in them, and um, and this is this is just one of the a display of Absolutely. that. Absolutely, let's move from one social media site to another then, and Twitter. Last week, Twitter announced that it was acquiring a Dutch startup called Review for an undisclosed sum. Review is a service that allows publishers to monetize newsletters similar to Substack and is already providing services for major content creators like Vox Media. This acquisition seemed to stoke rumors again of something that many people have talked about for a long time, which is that Twitter should become a subscription service. Emmett, you're an avid Twitter user. What do you think? Should Twitter go down the subscription path? I think they should, yeah. And I'll tell you why. Um, I'm speaking as a stock investor here, not necessarily an end user, which of course I am. Yeah. Um, but Twitter has 187 million daily active users. It has a highly engaged audience. Um, but when we look at it as an investment, on the day of Twitter's IPO um, about seven or eight years ago, shares closed on the day at $45 or thereabouts. Whereas a couple of days ago, on January 28th, they closed at fifty one fifty seven. Wow. So okay. they've barely increased at all. The shares have, uh, in essence, they've been flat since IPO. Now, of course, 
the in between bit is a different story, but they they they've barely increased like a compounded one to two percent per year since they floated. So from an investment perspective, it's been very lackluster. And there's been moments where Twitter is center stage and all spot the all eyes of the world are on Twitter, yeah. and most notably when President Trump was in office and was using it as his main platform for conversation. But but if you look at the other social networks in the same intervening period since. Twitter IPO'd, they've performed extraordinarily well. But you mentioned Scott Galloway there earlier, James, and, and I read a quote from uh, from Scott in, in was it, uh, I think it's New Yorker magazine. Uh, I, the quote is as follows. The company should recognise that many people and organisations derive enormous value from Twitter at little or no cost. My 345,000 follower account is an important tool in my professional life and a window into the communities I care about. I'd pay a subscription fee if Twitter thought to ask for it and I believe Kim Kardashian with nearly 69 million followers would pay more. And that's a very valid point. You know, if you've earned an audience through Twitter and they're engaged and it is your mouthpiece to the world as it was indeed for President Trump, these people generally can afford to pay for that. So I think that that wouldn't be a bad application and a bad idea for them. Yeah, absolutely. Rory, like as Emmett pointed out, if the last four years of the US presidential administration were (laughs) basically run on this platform and they haven't made it work from a business point of view yet, what other option do Twitter have other than to go down a different route to make money? Yeah, funny enough, Emmett, I read the exact same article. That was really good. Yeah, look, Twitter's advertising business has not panned out. The um, Facebook and Google own the digital advertising space. That's and and they have for years. That that doesn't mean that no other company can make money in the space. Like, but you have to differentiate yourself somehow. Pinterest is a perfect example of a company that manages to collect digital advertising revenue by distinguishing itself as different yeah. from what you see on things like uh, Facebook and Twitter. So it's a place where people come together over shared interests and shared hobbies. Um, Twitter is the way where people go to Twitter at the moment is for aggression. Yeah. That's, you know, it's, it's the currency of social media is getting people hyped up, getting people angry, um, sowing divide between people. And, you know, in that article, I, I know that he wrote, um, at the moment, Twitter, Twitter's annualized advertising revenue is about 3.2 billion. To entirely replace that revenue through subscription fees alone, Twitter would just need 15% of its users to pay an average of $10 a yeah. So like, it, the, it, the economics make complete sense. And if Twitter wants to hold itself as you know, higher up than Facebook, which it, I think it does. They never come out and blatantly say it, yeah. but I definitely think Jack Dorsey does see Twitter as a pure space then this is the exact kind of thing that they should do. They should be innovating to try and make it a better platform. Um, A subscription model brings up huge amounts of opportunities for things that they could do to clean it up and and get rid of the trolls and get rid of the, the, the divisions that are caused on it where people are just going on there to get this dopamine hit. Yeah of rage every day you know think about the verified accounts on Twitter that was originally intended for you know people of celebrity for example to ensure that that they weren't being impersonated by other people's online why not repurpose that idea and let everyone who wants to be verified be verified Mm. like and and people who want to remain anonymous anonymous can I suppose they want but it gives you so much greater control of how you want to react 
on the, to interact on the platform. Yeah. You could do some simple things like only verified people can respond to this, or I only want to see tweets from verified people. You know, super simple things like that could totally give people more control over the platform that they're on. And I suppose the the counter argument is that you'll end up with echo chambers, but we're already in echo chambers. Yeah. You know, that's the that's what's happening already because the algorithm's making it yeah. that way. So. I definitely think a subscription model would work great for Twitter in, you know, true to form. They announced an idea off it. Everyone went, great idea. And then they did absolutely nothing <laughs> for the next six months. Yeah. So um, they are the slowest innovating company in the world, I think, at the moment. And I hope they just get their act together and, and, and just even test it. Just do a test and see if it works. Because yeah. I think it will. I really do think well, it will. Well, in fairness, Jack Dorsey is splitting his time between Twitter and growing a beard. Um, <laughs> but with this acquisition of a review, how do you think you know an, a newsletter subscription which which has grown in popularity you know substack is is one of the most highly valued private companies recently how would a a, a tool like this help twitter move towards subscription do you think well there's always there's for decades been this tension between the people who create content and the people who distribute content you can see this all over the place so you look at studios versus netflix um Public, like uh, content, like journalists versus editors yeah. to start with, you know, artists versus Spotify, Spotify versus Apple. There's always this tension between people who have the content and people who have owned the rights to distribute the content. And this Substack is a great example of someone trying to change all that. So Substack was getting a lot of attention in recent months, largely because the media loves to write about itself. I have to <laughs> say they're always happy to, to just to go on about how great they are and how they, they need to be protected from these tech companies that are going to ruin their business models. But the Substack business model is basically giving content creators a chance to monetize their own content without the need for, you know, all the all the stuff that usually was the purview of the big distributors. Yeah. Um now, the problem I think with Substack is that what's going to end up happening is people are going to get so big that they're not going to need Substack anymore because, yeah. again, they own the contents. So what's, what's Substack really bringing to the party here and taking 10% of? Um, Review, on the other hand, is actually really exciting because in Twitter's hands, you could recreate that kind of Substack environment and Twitter is actually contributing something, which is you know the the chance that you could share this content or, or, or generate audience on this huge platform, yeah. which is built on, inf- on people, you know, transferring information to each other and talking about ideas with each other. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so simple. Things like Twitter has everyone's email. So if you want to subscribe, just push the subscribe button. It's as easy as following. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've got your credit card linked, you're instantly paying for a newsletter. And um, manage all those newsletters in one space so you're not going from one to the other trying to find the unsubscribe button on every single subscription that you've paid for and you you think about how Apple have been able to do this how many apps on your phone do you subscribe to that you don't really even think about you just know that they're all there and you're enjoying them and every now and again you get a message to say hey this subscription fee has come up do you want to cancel this and some of them you do and some of them you don't Imagine how powerful that could be on Twitter for all the content that you want to collect in your life all the content that you care about so I'm sure what Twitter's going to do is mess this up because that's what they always do. <laughs> but, you know, it, there's a big difference between buying a great company and executing. Yeah. We all remember Vine, yeah. the original TikTok. Um, so I really hope that they... And they are moving fast. They're pushing this quickly. I've seen already that they're putting out um, beta for this, for this thing as we speak. Okay. So at least they're moving fast on it. But I really think it could be a game changer for them and it could tie into this whole subscription model as well and make... Twitter, a place that people are happy to go to and pay for to get 
the content that they want and and speak about it with the kind of people that they want. Yeah, being happy to go to Twitter. I I won't hold my breath on that one yet. <laughs> no more doom scrolling. <laughs> Let's move on then and take a quick look at some of the things going on in my Wall Street at the moment. This week we have a brand new stock of the month pick, Rory. When I was talking to you about this yesterday, you said there was actually a very easy selection for you to make this month. Why was that? It was easy because there was so much noise that I had no other option but to just step back entirely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of way. Sometimes, I don't know if you get this, Anna, but sometimes when there's just so much stuff happening, you just go, okay, I can't deal with any of that right now. I just need to focus on one thing and, and then it just became yeah. quite simple. Um, went back to fundamentals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so don't forget, if you want to hear more of Rory chatting about this company, the latest episode of the Stock of the Month podcast is coming to the My Wall Street app on Monday, February 8th. You won't find this podcast anywhere else. So if you're not yet a member of My Wall Street but want to listen in, you can start your free trial by just clicking on the link in the notes for today's show. Jargon busters, guys. And the first question I'm going to throw over to you, and this comes in from Dara, who got in touch with us via the My Wall Street app. He asked if there's a right time of the day to buy stocks. So I've heard people say this before that you know you should avoid the opening hour and the closing hour, or maybe Fridays as well. Do you, to your mind, for a long-term investor, I suppose, is there a right time of the day you should buy or sell stock? Yeah, I described to that point. I mean, insofar as that I, I usually avoid the top and tail of the week. So I avoid the market open and market close on a daily basis and on a weekly basis, you know. So, you know, for me, just through observation, and I'm sure there's big data that could actually substantiate or, you know, knock down this point. But um, the first two hours of the day are ones I avoid. So that's from 9.30 Eastern time to around maybe half 10 or half 11. Um, and then at the tail end of the day and, and you know, so that's between 3 and 4 p.m. Uh, New York time. So I would avoid those hours. I, I almost always place a market order because I decide when I want to buy a share and I go and the liquidity is usually uh, sufficiently large for me to just fulfill the order at the time where I've made that decision. Almost always. I'm not going to go into trading types now. So I, I also, I generally don't place an order out of hours. So I wouldn't have an order queued. I wouldn't sit down and place an order on a Saturday or a Sunday or in a, uh, during, you know, holidays. Um, equally, I would try and avoid, you know, uh, uh, buying shares or selling shares uh, before quarterly reporting because there's another frenzied activity. So I generally around events plus the top and tail of the week. Yeah. Um, market orders, middle of the week, middle of the day. You know, they, we are long-term investors. So we should just get in when the heat is not playing a role in, in that particular decision at that time. Absolutely. Thanks for that. The next question also comes in via the My Wall Street app, and this is from Alistair. He asked about iRobot and specifically how it is managing to sell its products at a premium price still, despite there being many knockoff versions out there. Um, to use GoPro, I suppose, as an example here, we saw that GoPro's early market leading position was eaten away over time by, you know, cheaper versions of the camera coming out. How, what is iRobot doing to avoid this? Emmett, I might throw that back to you again. Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of iRobot and I, I don't put it in the same uh, basket as I would GoPro and I'm a shareholder in iRobot and I'm a big believer in its future. Um, 
So I suppose I'll start in the most microscopic of analyses, which is the fact that I've been a customer of iRobot for probably 10 years. And it's that robot plays a large part in the functioning of our home and it cleans the floor to a very high level. And each successive iRobot we've we've bought has has been better than the last and notably better, quieter, better tech, very impressive software and app and all that kind of stuff. So that's an opinion of one. And I haven't bought any of the cheap knockoffs, which I'm reliably informed are very very good as well but um, if I zoom out a little bit and, and uh, Wired magazine or online Wired uh, there just about a week ago did a review of the best robot vacuums for any budget in 2021 and their review of the best robotic vacuum in 2021 is the iRobot Roomba i7 Plus which is the one I have in my home here so third party reviewers have noticed that it is in fact more effective you know, cleans the floor better, has better tech, better software. And then when we zoom out even further again, you know, there, there there's so many parallels that we can draw between uh, any piece of hardware and cheap knockoffs. So why would you buy an iPhone instead of an entry-level Huawei, for example? Or yeah. And that's not even to diss Huawei. I'm just saying, like, why would you choose one piece of hardware over another? And generally, it's look, it's feel, it's usability, and it's software. And the look and feel, usability, and software of robot is really really good so if you want to uh, buy a robot a cleaning robot that kind of is top end and you're not absolutely budget sensitive then I believe iRobot is the one and also uh, I suppose just looking at the company performance which is what we're here to do as uh, investors uh, third quarter for iRobot uh, sales were up 43% year over year mostly driven by their higher end products which are priced above 500 bucks and while cheap robot vacuums are widely available you know from umpteen other manufacturers consumers are willing to pay for a better uh, piece of hardware and and frankly despite the recent short squeeze i think our robot is cheap i, yeah. I it's a three billion dollar business that has a brand name that's known across america it's in i don't know how many millions of homes last count it was something like 20 million homes in the us and and uh and it has a p like a, a utility company so i i actually think our robot has a very promising long-term future ahead okay thanks for that Last question for today then concerns Salesforce and its recent acquisition of Slack. As Slack is a company that features in both the My Wall Street shortlist and the Horizon portfolio, I'm interested to hear both of your guys' opinions on whether you're planning on holding on to your shares and becoming a, a shareholder of Salesforce through the acquisition, or are you going to offload your Slack shares and take the profit? Rory, I'll come to you first. What do you what do you think of this? So personally, I own shares of Slack and I decided to sell yeah. them um, and redeploy them in another uh, asset, which was Peloton. 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 The thinking behind it was that, you know, when I bought Slack, I bought them for a particular purpose and I had that in a part of my portfolio that I had thinking in terms of growth and I thought it was going to be a great growth stock. Uh moving over to Salesforce which I think is a brilliant company I'm a huge fan of Mark Benioff and, and the business that he's built yeah. there that just didn't sit in my portfolio in, the, in, in that way and um, you know Salesforce with Slack now I think is a much more powerful business I think it's going to experience some great growth in the years ahead and it's one of those ones where I'm always like why isn't it in our showroom so maybe it will be in our <laughs> showroom pretty soon because I do think it's a great company it wasn't the, the reason I didn't stick with it wasn't because of any you know that I didn't like the company or anything like that it just didn't align with with um, what that money had been originally yeah. intended for in, as part of that portfolio What do you think Emmett would you agree that you know Slack was a growth stock Salesforce maybe not so much a, a stock you would 
hope to see as much growth on. I followed the exact same trajectory as Rory. I made the same decision. I was a shareholder. Um, I sold for pretty much the exact same reason. I, I admire Salesforce massively. And as Rory said, I think it's a better company or will be a better company when Slack is integrated. Um, and as I've said a few times recently, um, Salesforce has been, was one of my kind of investment regrets so i got out i'm i was i made 75 percent or thereabouts on the sale um and i could have as easily held and taken yeah. the cash and also converted over to shares at some point in the weeks ahead and very happily being a crm or salesforce uh, shareholder uh, i just again like rory just figured i have better places i want to deploy that capital so uh yeah snap cool Thanks for that. So let's move on to the elevator pitch then. So this week's elevator pitch, there's a lot to live up to. And we've decided to go with, a, I think, I think an equally spicy topic here. So guys, today, what I want you to do is tell me what S&P 500 stock you would short if you had to. I'm going to come in with the disclaimer here that <laughs> this is obviously a bit of fun. We would never recommend that long-term investors short stocks. Know the dangers. You can lose more than 100% of your investment, etc., etc. But um, yeah, if you had to short one S&P 500 stock, what would you pick? Rory, I'll go with you first. I'll put the further disclaimer in here that this isn't the most well thought out pitch because <laughs> when I'm looking at stocks, like as soon as I see one thing I don't like, I just stop looking, you know, yeah. I, don't, I don't deep dive into why it's bad. I just go, nah, not for me. And then so <laughs> there's no like real deep logic to this th- this pick. However, the one I would do based on one thing alone is Cisco Systems. And the reason I would do that is because it's a $200 billion company who at one point had Eric Wan, the CEO of Zoom, as an employee. He pitched a brilliant idea in the company, tried to lead the company in a totally new innovative direction. They rejected his idea and he left and took something like 80 engineers with him and founded Zoom, which is now going to overtake them as one of, I think, the biggest communication companies in the world. So just for that one just lack of foresight on their part I think you know 200 billion dollars you let that slip through your fingers come on I've also used their consume competitor recently and trust me there's a reason why Zoom has got the valuation yeah. it does I know exactly what you're talking about there it's, uh, it's not not a great product Emmett what about you again I I have to emphasize uh, caution here while obviously my crystal ball was perfectly functioning for AMC I am not a shorter of stocks and I'm not a you know one of predicting when a stock is going to fall um and the fact that it has to be an S&P 500 company kind of further restricted I did spot something outside the S&P 500 which I thought was a little bit richly valued but I'm going to stay within the parameters and I'm going to go with L Brands ticker LB um simply again just one data point they l brands are better known for victoria secret or the secrets um uh what is it rory victoria secret or victoria secret how many secrets does she have drag me into this (laughs) but anyway l brands l brands owner of victoria secret has uh, been on a run lately and the reason i would short it uh it's like an awful lot of stocks over the last couple of months has doubled in value um but it's swimming in debt you know the company has a market cap uh, at the moment of around 12 billion dollars its enterprise value which is when you minus out cash and add in debt is about nearly uh 19 billion dollars and it's it's traditional retail i'm sure they figured out their online model but i just think you know that the business looks to me to be a little bit uh 
richly valued for an yeah. old world business. But that, I mean, as you can see, the invest the shorting thesis there is not very rock solid. But I'd, I'd short L brands. If L brand stock starts dropping rapidly next week, I'm calling the SEC. <laughs> Emmett, I'm telling you, <laughs> or confiscating that crystal ball off you. Didn't L brands try to offload Victoria's Secrets at one point, and they couldn't even sell it for like way less than what's valued at now? That, that was recent. Yeah, enough, it I wasn't think. that long ago. And by the way, just the other one I was thinking of, and and this is not in the S P five hundred. It's even riskier, and there's no way I'd short it or L brands or anything for that matter. Is um is MicroStrategy who um, are most, I suppose, famed recently for becoming really an investment in Bitcoin. And they've run from 100 bucks a share to 650 bucks a share. They've missed every uh, earnings, uh, quarterly earnings for the last long, long time. They keep missing their, their consensus analysts. So as a business, they're not performing, but effectively when you buy shares of MicroStrategy, I think an awful lot of the excitement is down to the fact that they bought a whole pile of Bitcoin. Yeah. I just don't see, I just, I, I'd short MicroStrategy, but I, won't, I wouldn't, if you know what I mean. <laughs> the stock is only up nearly fivefold in the last year so. Um, yeah we'll, we'll wait to see how those play out um so that's it from this week's stock club don't forget about all the great new stuff in my wall street at the moment if there's anything you'd like us to discuss or explain on the next episode make sure to get in touch you can find us on twitter that's at my wall street hq or email us at pod at my wall that's pod at my wall don't forget to subscribe to stock club too and if you're enjoying the podcast please leave a review or a rating for us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on that's it from us here today stay safe and we'll talk to you in two weeks happy investing my business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments then tap to pay on iphone and stripe came along and changed everything with tap to pay on iphone and stripe i streamlined my payment process effortlessly Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.